welcome everyone back to another episode of the Field Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rhodes, your local extension educator for crops in Stearns, Benton, and Morrison Counties. And with me, I'm pretty sure you just had to throw out a parachute here today to get here, right? And just ride the wind is uh, Mike Cruz from Houston and Fillmore Counties. How are you doing today, Mike? I, I'm doing really well. And yes, all you had to do is just stick a sail on top of the car and just head north. And that was about all I needed to do. Well, without any wasting any time here, again, we have uh, Joe Bogarding joining us again here today. Um, for those of you who don't know, he was here on one of our previous episodes where we got a chance to sit down and talk to him about the history of his farm. And thankfully, he welcomed back uh, us back onto his farm. How are you doing today, Joe? Doing well. Good, good. Well, we're, we're very thankful uh, that we're back here talking with you. And we had a, a number of topics we wanted to cover uh, from our last conversation. But I, I kind of want to start out this conversation uh, focusing on weeds. Um Obviously, we we talked a little bit about how you guys manage your soils, uh, your different approaches over time. Uh, kind of curious, what does your weed population look like on these soils, and how has that changed over time? Well, I guess I'd have to say we do grow some pretty healthy weeds. Uh, <laughs> I won't deny that, you know. But we are, I'm sort of a research guy, and I'm always trying things, and I'm pushing the envelope. And that's part of why I I struggle, but I've also had some great successes. And uh, when things when things work, it's it's just amazing how how clean it can be. And in general, we do pretty well. But then I take myself and try some things I probably shouldn't. Like we're trying strip till organic with live growing cover crops between the rows, and trying to plant into this year we're going to try green planting into the standing cover and then try to deal with the cover later and doing it organically that is the ultimate challenge in my mind but i'm going to see if we can't pull it off or at least learn something so i think the healthier the soil and by health i mean vigorously biologically fungally aerobically all of those things have to be working and weeds don't like that as well crops do so the crops can outcompete the weeds when all the conditions are right my challenge is to try to create those conditions aerobically biologically fungally and understand which crops like which soil conditions soybeans like a fungal soil corn likes a bacterial soil and you create those soils by what residues and what previous crops you've put in things like that that most people don't think about um corn and soybeans work well together as a rotation because soybeans like the fungal and corn likes the bacterial that comes from all the nitrogen that's produced by the soybeans and the finer residues not not as much brown carbon the carbon nitrogen ratios become critical to making better um, conditions for those crops. Right. And that confuses the weeds because we keep changing them. It confuses the pests. It confuses the the the, the, the bad things. Um, but to stay on top of all that is, is a challenge. And it's a learning, it's a learning curve like most people wouldn't challenge. But I've challenged myself. I want to learn how to manage those things. 
the best way to make it work even better is to add more diversity to those. And if you go three or four years without corn instead of just one, you'll likely not have hardly any of those pests that used to bother your corn. Same with soybeans, same with alfalfa. You widen out that rotation. So people ask me about my rotation, and I can't explain it. It's very complex. It's constantly changing, depending on what our outgo- what our what our goals are for the field, and what our what our needs are for feed and maybe crop marketing. We we we're constantly changing it, but we're never running the same crop back to back. That separates the opportunity for the pests and the weeds that like those types of crops. And the other part about that, it builds the soil. It improves the soil conditions because you, you get a more diverse biology by having a more diverse crop rotation. And then um, between our crops, we put in as many cover crops as we can. And we've struggled with it. We've had some wet falls and, and late springs, and it, it's a struggle to, to really get aggressive with cover crops this far north on our cold, wet soils. Yeah. So we are now incorporating a lot of cover crops into our standing corn, inter- interseeding mm-hmm. with a with a mounted drill. We can interseed covers, grasses and clovers and a, a good blend. And um, so that's how we can get something started. We're doing a lot of winter annuals, winter triticale, winter mm-hmm. rye, a lot of rye. And now um, I'm, I'm experimenting for, I think it's eight years now, I've been growing spelt as a... Uh, started out as a cover crop, mm. but if it survives the winter, I've got a crop. Right. Sometimes I get just enough crop to get my seed back. But I'm 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 kind of sorting yeah. and selecting the, the more vigorous winter hardy spelt. The surviving seed is is my new seed. Gotcha. So we're that's kind of a project I'm doing and I kind of enjoy. Um, I, I'm going to stop you for one second, Joe, because I want to see if Nathan's picked up on this. I asked you a question about weeds, right? <laughs> I don't know that you've touched on one weed so far. I don't know that you have touched on one approach to controlling weeds. What you have actually touched on throughout the whole thing, which is on point and it's great, is that there's this base that you need. And if you don't fix this base to begin with, yeah, you can deal with all the symptoms after they come up, after the weeds come up and the populations bloom. But if you don't have this base, you're talking about healthy soils, diverse soils. And then you're spending a, a, quite a bit of time here on your rotations, your diversity in rotations, length of rotations, and other crops. I mean, that's that's probably one of the coolest answers I think I've ever gotten to a, hey, what weeds do you have on your on your farm question? I, I, I think right now that there's a lot of, if we do have any weed scientists, you know, they're all sitting there uh, fidgeting a little bit because they heard the word weeds and now that we're not talking about weeds, but, you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, I've, I've actually got some questions. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was that uh, corn likes uh, bacterial and soybeans like the, the, fun, the fungal portion of that. Um, is that backwards or why, why is that considering we know that bacteria are what our soybeans used to fix nitrogen? And that corn especially likes those uh, mycorrhizae fungi, fungi to help, especially with phosphorus. Is there maybe uh, an interaction there where uh, maybe that's uh, maybe they're also helping each other out as well? Or you think? I don't have the education to explain it all. 
word for word. I just have a lot of my education is trial and error and anecdotal and uh, observational. I can't explain all the science, but um, corn residue leaves a lot of carbon. And that seems to provide a good a good environment for soybeans and legumes. Um, and there's other reasons, not just that. Uh, our best alfalfa, our best corn was always following a good alfalfa stand, and I believe a, just the fact that we had tap roots, and our soil tends to be tight and anaerobic, and the tap roots would solve some of that. So you could say, well, alfalfa is good for corn rotation. But it was the alfalfa, or was it the fact that we dried out the soil, we warmed it up, we provided some holes for the roots and better drainage for the corn? So was it the alfalfa, or was it just the fact that it had a taproot? You know, maybe sunflowers would have done the same. So my observations are not based on years of laboratory trials or verifying things, but it works. You know, that's what I'm going on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, well, and, and I guess another question here, based off of some other things that you've mentioned, is you know, in terms of cover crops, getting back to weeds. Well, we'll we'll keep circling it back here to <laughs> <Okay>. weeds. <laughs> um, you know, I, you listed off a wide range of cover crops that you're using. Have you noticed any, you know, a, a shift in those weed populations that corresponds with the cover crops that you tried? Have you noted had any observations on that front? If I can get the good cover crop and get a good biological reaction or a good plow down of alfalfa. Sometimes I'll sacrifice that fourth cutting of alfalfa and I'll put it down. And that does so much good for the soil bacteria and, and the biology that I will have the cleanest corn I've ever had the following year. I can't totally explain it, but I know that the healthy bacteria were part of that. Uh, we mentioned before, uh, we don't have corn borer issues. We don't have rootworm issues, things like that, because we rotate. Part of, they say that corn borers can survive one year of soybeans. And um, I found it interesting. My son was working for a farmer out by Fargo, and he was pulling the big chisel plow behind the four-wheel drive, and he had gotten out of the tractor to check, you know, he's, he's chiseling soybean ground. And he got out to check the digger, and he sees corn stalks everywhere. And he thought, what happened? Where did these corn stalks come from? That's corn stalks from the year before. And he had not seen that. If your soil is biologically active, you're not going to have two-year-old corn stalks in your ground. Your biology will consume them and break them down. And that's, if you have two-year-old corn straw, there's something wrong with your soil. And he questioned, what's going on? Why is there corn stalks here? Because he'd never seen that before. Our corn stalks decompose. Right. Because we do not have dead soil. We used to. I remember years ago, we had a cold, wet summer. At the end of the summer, I plowed up my corn, and I turned up the previous year's alfalfa stubble. I'm not kidding. It hadn't even broken down. Right. It was easily recognized that was my alfalfa stubble, which I had plowed down. Yeah. That's a sign of a dead soil. Leave it to me to kill my soil so I could learn that. But I don't ever want to see that again. You've got to break down your residues. And now your residues will not harbor those diseases. Same thing with weeds. Weeds, if you have a healthy biological soil, you know, you always talk about weed seeds can stay in the ground for years and years and years unless you decompose them. Now, is that a solution to a weed problem? 
decompose your seeds. I think it works. Yeah, and, and I actually would agree. I don't know that. which weed. Well, weed. I don't know how many. <laughs> I don't know the process totally. But you're enhancing the process of decomposition is going to enhance the decomposition of weed seeds. Um, another one that I've seen very, very black and white is, I mentioned grass. Um, even when I was farming some conventional ground, I was able to eliminate grass herbicides from the mix by structuring the soil through proper, healthy um, soil practices. And calcium and air, I think, are the two biggest enemies for grass seed. They like tight anaerobic soil. You always have to, if you want to grow grass, you got to pack the ground. If you have loose, crumbly soil, the grass doesn't germinate. Hmm. Unless you get too wet, you lose your air, now you're going to have grass. Right. I've seen that again. To me, those are some things that I've seen. I can't prove it. Yeah. But I've seen it, and that. Well, and I think uh, coming from, from my perspective, I think actually you're maybe not necessarily the calcium, but uh, definitely having that structure there because you've got a lot of other things going on there uh, that, you know, you uh, soil that's being plowed maybe doesn't. And so in, in that regards, you know, what I'm looking at, I'm thinking of predators that are going to come in that are going to eat the seeds. And of course you mentioned decomposition. So you do, you know, if the seed is sitting there every, you know, every extra moment it's sitting there, there's a potential for a bacteria or a fungal pathogen to come along and start decomposing that seed. And then of course you're leaving it on the top six inches, which means birds and other things come in and eat those and carry it off. And so there's a lot of different ways that that seed could go come out and, and even for grass seed, I mean, you think about it, you know, grass seed's definitely in that area and it tends not to be as long-lived as something like a, a hard broadleaf weed, um, something like even a water hemp plant or a common lamb's quarter seed. Yeah, so I think that's part of what you might be actually seeing there is, is a lot of that work that, you know, having that extra soil health, you know, in that regard where you've got all those extra predators, those extra decomposers and things like that, they're actually helping you uh, manage your weeds like that. Yeah, and recent, um, just in recent years, they've discovered the uh, symbiosis, symbiotic relationship between like fungus and roots on corn and things. Right. And the fungus can deliver nutrients to the root, and the root will feed back some sugar. Mm-hmm. And since they've discovered that, it's no longer considered a parasite. It is now a partner in this process. And so my goal is to always have something green in the ground as much as a, as much of the year as I possibly can. Keep something green growing, so keep something feeding those bugs. And um, that's critical. Weeds fit that category. So now I say it's not a weed until it goes to seed. Until then, it's a cover. And I don't necessarily take them out as soon as they germinate. If I know I have the option to get it out later, mm-hmm. I'll take it out later. As long as it's not competing in my row for my new crop. This is a bit of a stretch, but I will literally let the weed grow between the rows until I find it's time to terminate them. I don't think they compete that much if you keep them four, five, six inches away from the row, which I can do with strip tillage. There's no competition in the root zone. And I know there's times when my weeds are not any greener than the people that want to spray their Roundup and it's too windy or too wet and they don't get their sprayed either. But I don't have any weeds in my row. Where if you're waiting for Roundup, you're going to have weeds in your row. I don't. 
Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna follow up on that one. Um because you know, we teach private pesticide applicator training. One of the big takeaways that we have on that is you gotta hit those weeds when they're small, right? Um, you gotta hit them with some sort of herbicide two, four, six inches, typically, right? If you're hitting six inches, you're too late. Exactly, right? And so the fact that you start saying, I'm gonna I'm gonna let it go. Until I, it goes a little bit later, all of a sudden I kind of I believe it, right, right. Yeah. And so I'm I'm curious then. Obviously, organic type system, so you're you're not using the herbicide approach. Like, what are your approaches to controlling weeds? Whether you you mentioned the strip till, right? But what are your approaches? Maybe when they're smaller earlier in the year, when they get bigger. I'm I'm, I'm curious what you do. Well, the old style. Well, first of all, my first pass after planting is a is a double pass rotary hole. Yeah, I do, I built a rotary hole that makes two passes over the row, mm-hmm. so you hit it twice. So it's pretty pretty effective. Yeah. So that six eight inches is pretty clean. Mm-hmm. So the stuff that's growing next to the row isn't as critical as if it was in the row. That seems to be really critical. Then. I've got a Hineker cultivator with a broad sweep, 16, 18 inch sweep. That'll take out, it'll take out most anything. I don't use that always. Um, I built a, uh, specifically for the clovers and things like that, that get a little viney. I built a cultivator out of an old disc and an old cultivator. I put disc blades in space in place of shovels. Okay. So now I can cultivate about five miles an hour, throwing all the dirt away from the row, piling it up in the middle, covering those leaves. And now I've got it laying in the middle. So the next time I cultivate, I got dirt to work with, I can push it back into the row. So I've got separate zones. I've got my strip till zone. Sure. I'm working with that. Yep. And I don't mind making an extra pass. If we're doing 10, 12, 15 acres an hour, mm-hmm. that's not wasting my time. That's I'm willing to do that. So we'll make those extra passes. It's RTK. I was gonna ask on, on the guys and stuff. Yep, yep. I can listen to my podcast while I'm driving. <laughs> you can listen to the Field Guide podcast. Yeah, while go, yeah. yeah we'll look forward to it. So yeah, I've just developed my own totally independent strategy because yeah. of how I farm, and and then another thing about weed control is these forages. I really believe that having these forages, they cover up a lot of things and they create a lot of wiggle room to get around and if if you have a total mess sometimes the heifers love it <laughs> you know it's not a waste that's the beauty of having this intermix of livestock and crops okay can you touch on that a little bit how how do you feel that the livestock i mean you have the forage part of it and you have the extended rotation i get that part i, I mean maybe that is where the livestock come into play on in your weed control where do you think you get benefits from the livestock there well, obviously, the manure is the first. You, okay. you you can replace a lot of your nutrients every year, and there's a good lot of biological activity in your manure. Um, I always joke that in high school, I slept through biology class on purpose. I said, I'm going to be a farmer. I don't need this stuff. <laughs> Little did I know, it's all about biology. Right. And everyone in agriculture is discovering that. Yeah. Every day, you see more and more about the biology. And so once we start to decide that biology is your friend, you do everything you can to feed it and nourish it and protect it. So um, um, the livestock are just a huge part of that. Yeah. And um, you need 
you need prime good quality feed for the dairy cows. Sometimes you need a little coarser feed for the dry cows or for the young stock. You need corn for the steers. And we're even minimizing that now. We're trying to minimize corn feeding. I think you'll get a better heat quality, heat characteristics with more grass. Sure. Um, I like the fact I don't have to harvest every acre. I've got some marginal land. Does it pay to invest in tile and fertilizer and tillage, or should I just graze it? And this, you had mentioned um, rotational grazing. Once we discovered that rotational grazing, now it makes sense. But not just on the marginal soils, but you can use your marginal soils, but you have to rotate them in and out of sure. the high ground, and then, but don't put the cattle in there when it's wet in the low ground. So now you can make the low ground work, but you don't have cattle in there all summer. Right. You put them in when the conditions are right. You don't destroy the, the, the sod. So. Well, and I guess I got a follow-up question to that. You know, you mentioned, you know, pushing the uh, weed management side of things here a little bit further. You've got pastures you're rotationally grazing. How do you deal with potential weeds there, you know, and, and how do you work with that without utilizing herbicides in there? We used to, um, I started out grazing. I didn't know anything about it. And I hired a herdsman who had done more grazing than me. And uh, I learned a lot from him. I, we signed up for grazing classes um, like this. Um, my son did an internship with, uh, I can't think of the, the name right now. And um, and just observing. When we used to graze, we'd, we, you know, we're thinking of a haybine. You want, mm-hmm. you want to get it all cut down to three inches, right? You can't graze that way. You have to leave some leaves behind because you're going to be coming back and back and back. You've got to let the roots rebuild. So, and your 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 grass is a solar collector, but you can't collect if you keep taking the leaves. Right. You've got to let the leaves grow out and get some maturity. And so, when we learned how to leave the grass grow, um, you have you have to feel like you're wasting at least a third of your grass. If you feel like you're wasting it, you're probably about right because you're going to get 50% more grass because you wasted a third of it. Right. Because now you got a solar collector and you protected your soil. If you eat, if you let your grass get short, the roots will be short. The roots are typically not longer than the tops. The other thing is if you have a short top, you're not shading your ground. If you don't shade the ground, you're going to have a high temperature. You're going to shut down your biology and, um, and you're going to evaporate more water. So we learned to leave some shade on the ground. And the taller we let the grass, the more grass we get to harvest, even though it looks like we're wasting a lot. Um, this this is a great conversation. I love where this conversation is, has kind of gone to. And it's it's made me think of a couple of things from, from school for me. Um, this I didn't learn in class. Learned it from another grad student. The, your, your best approach to controlling weeds is a healthy crop. It, once once you actually have a healthy crop, they will fend for themselves. That's where I was going. Yeah, exactly. We used to have thistles, yep. and, and now they really, really diminish because we have a healthy grass crop. If yep. we struggle, if the crop struggles because of overgrazing, the thistles and dandelions are going to fill in. So that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the other thing that we always talked about with, with weeds in particular, talking about where they grow, um, was this idea of opportunity space. You can give them opportunity space if they have light where they didn't have it before or they have water, you know, things like that. But you can flip that idea around and go, okay, how do we create opportunity space for that crop to make sure it gets the right start so then it can out-compete the weeds and hang on? 
just love where this conversation is going. Well, and, and that gets back to integrated weed management. Yes. You know, yes. making sure that you're timing that nutrient. You know, sometimes we aren't putting on those nutrients where they probably should go. And, and when you do that, you're not giving that crop that advantage. Same, you know, it's a, you could think of this in a lot, a lot of different ways, uh, whether you think of cutting timings and you know, things along those lines in this, in this sense, you know, where if you're not providing that crop the proper opportunity to take advantage of everything that you've given it, then you run that risk where something's going to, and it's probably not something that you want to grow. Yep. Yep. So Joe, we got, you know, probably just a little bit uh, left here to go on the, on this conversation. So I just kind of want to throw out a kind of an odd question. Cause I think it'll make our listeners kind of, kind of happy. Um, can you tell us some of the strangest approaches you've taken to weed control mechanisms, things like that? Have you used flame weeders, things of that nature? Give us pros and cons and things that you've learned. I built a six row weed whacker with a hydraulic drive motor on an old colorator frame. Took some bicycle chain and sickle blades and went out whacking weeds between the rows. I think I can manage my cover crop and just mulch everything. That was before I had GPS. Ah. <laughs> it don't look good. <laughs> but the concept is there. Right. And we're going to follow up on that. Okay. Um, that was one of my craziest things. Um, I did, uh, 2019 was wet. Mm-hmm. And I had fields that I had no business being out there. We had some rye. We, I strip-tailed into two-foot-tall rye. It's a mess. So I ended up cutting it with a hay barn, and we bailed it, but I had it stripped, and then it rained some more. Couldn't get back out there. It's like June 4th. This needs to get planted, but it's mud, and it's lumpy, but we had a little gray dirt on top because I had kicked it loose with the strip tiller, which we had modified with a field cultivator shovel instead of a shank. Mm-hmm. Took one out of the pile, welded them in, so we had shallow tillage. And I planted soybeans in there, and I had to cut it again. The rye grew back. I didn't wait for this emphesis thing. So we cut it again, just clipped it. Sure. Looks like a mess. It came in later with my disc cultivator, buried the residue, and there's places on my yield maps we were hitting 60 bushel soybeans. But when I got done that night, I came home. I, when I planted the beans, I had taken all the down pressure springs off the planter. I never filled the boxes over half full because this ground is soft and mucky and sticky. I said, we don't dare pack it. So we, uh, I said, this is the first time I ever planted beans like that. I didn't really plant them. I just kind of laid them in the ground as lightly as possible. And then we, we took the pressure off the springs, just making sure we close. This is all about observation and experience and trial and, and a little nerve. And I went to bed nervous. But they germinated, and we didn't pack it too much. They 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 yep. emerged, yep. and we had fairly successful. From the road, it looked terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Who goes in a soybean field with a disc bind to mow down rye that doesn't die? <laughs> so things like that. It makes it interesting. Kind of goes back to his whole, we used to take things out of the, you know, out of the grove, the spare iron, and just kind of put things together, see what worked. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely yes. love it. Nathan, do you have any follow-up questions on anything we've talked about? I do not, but I do look forward to coming out here again and 
and getting a chance to look at some of this equipment, I, I you know, it seems to seems to me like there'd be a whole episode alone on it, on your equipment here. So, yeah, I like I like iron. Love some it. farms are iron deficient. Yeah, we're, we're not. You're not. <laughs> there we go. All right. Well. Uh, again, thank you, Joe, for allowing us to come back onto your farm here and, and have a chance to have this conversation. I loved every second of it. Again, if you would like to learn more about everything we talked about, as well as other crop production and livestock information, go to z.umn.edu. And if you'd like to connect with us local educators, all you have to do is look for the local educator page on that same website. Thanks again. Hopefully we'll see you guys next time.